Well, I grew up in the 80s watching a fair bit of television. And if you're like me, you often heard this announcement on television. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test, followed by some horrible noise that would later be repeated when you were dialing up your modem to get on AOL. But back to those words of that announcement. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. I remember as a kid usually just being annoyed at that horrible sound and that seemingly useless announcement. But every now and then I would ponder, what if it's not a test? What does that sound like? When will that happen, if ever? And what would I do if it's not just a test? Well, we come to a story in the book of Genesis today where we, the readers, are told by the narrator Moses right from the beginning, this is only a test. But Abraham, who's experiencing the test, isn't told it's a test until he's deep into it. And some tests are like that, aren't they? Some tests wouldn't be very effective if everyone knew it was just a test, which reminds me of something else of my childhood, fire drills. If you knew it was a fire drill, it was just a drill, then you goofed off with your friends in the hallway and outside. And every now and then, they'd mix it up a little bit, and you didn't know, is this really a fire? Is it? Well, for both the reader, and I'm sure much more so for Abraham, who's going through this specific test, it is difficult to watch. But it is a powerful lesson in obedience and faith and what is ultimate And what God wants of us, it's even a window into how God saves us. So if you have a Bible, look at Genesis 22. Today we're going to look at two chapters, Genesis 22 and 23. And I'll start by reading the first 14 verses of chapter 22. Look down in your Bibles and follow along. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! He said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took on his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. 
He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Well, again, we'll read on in just a bit. But that much text will occupy at least a couple of headings for us. Here's the first heading, a test required. A test required. This point will take the longest because I want to take some time to unpack and apply this thing of testing. But we'll have to understand first what's happening with Abraham here in the story It's a test required. Why was it required? We don't know. We're not told. Thinking theologically, we know it wasn't required because God needed to find something out. It's not as if God doesn't know what's in the human heart. He knows our thoughts and our ways, our motives, better than we know Ourselves better than Abraham knew of himself. So even though it says, verse 12, now I know that you fear God, we have to conclude that that's a statement written from human perspective, spoken by God, yes, but written from human perspective. God condescends to talk to us like that, to talk to us like we talk. It's actually not that uncommon in the Bible, in these Old Testament stories, to read things like, God remembered this or that, but but he didn't, right? Or to read that he came down to see what was going on, but we know he's everywhere, right? We know that language like that isn't literal, it's God condescending to talk like we do. And so the testing of Abraham isn't required so that God would know something of Abraham to know what he would do. God already knows. The testing is for Abraham and for the later readers of the story like us. Nevertheless, it was required of Abraham. And the assignment is stated in unequivocal terms. Take, go, offer your son a burnt offering. 
And while the words are unequivocal, they are not dispassionate. Notice verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Twice more in the text, it will refer to Isaac as your son, your only son. Verse 12 and verse 16. He is the only son of Abraham, especially now in light of Ishmael's departure from the family, which we saw in the last chapter. Isaac is literally the only son, the only son there. And he is, as we saw last week and weeks before, he is the promised son, not just the only son, not just the precious son, not, the, not just the beloved son, he's the promised son. God has not forgotten Moses, the narrator, certainly won't let us forget. Abraham has certainly not forgotten that God has specified Isaac would be the seed, the offspring through whom the promises of the Abrahamic covenant would come and be fulfilled. And so we just marvel at this point, right? After hearing a son promised, starting in chapter 12 and then again in 13 and 15. After Isaac being specified in chapter 17 and again last week in chapter 21. It doesn't seem right that God would tell Abraham to take him and go and kill him. But that's exactly the point. That's the crux of the test. God is showing Abraham and us something of the complexity of obedience and the mystery of faith. As astounding as the command is, Abraham's obedience actually matches it. Verse 3, early the next morning, he got ready. No delay whatsoever. And the steps involved are told in painstaking detail here. It slows the narrative way down, elevating the drama and the pain involved. And it wasn't just an immediate decision, like ripping off a band-aid and then it's done. But it was a three days journey to the mountain. Three days, 70 miles a lot of time to think about this, to rethink your decision, to not go through with it. But Abraham keeps going all the way to the mountain, then up the mountain, alone with his boy, a trusting son carrying the wood on his back, and a loving father with a knife in his hand. It should make us queasy. We can't imagine such obedience and faith. And thankfully, God isn't calling any of us in this room to do something like this. Something this severe. Something this seemingly upside down or backwards. This was a unique situation. 
And yet, there are principles that we can draw out from the rest of Scripture on the nature of trials and testing that do fit really well in our Christian lives. So let me just pause here to run through a few of these principles that we share with Abraham in our times of trial or testing. Four principles. Number one, God can take anything He chooses. Anything we have, we don't really have. It's His. Job said it so well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God can take anything He wants without explanation. And even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us, even when it seems to run contrary to His character or to His promises or His purposes to do us good. And some of you have learned that not only from the Bible, but from painful experience. Some of you have learned that reluctantly, but inevitably. Isaiah 55, there God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. God can take anything He chooses without explanation to us, even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us. Second principle, while God never tempts us to sin, that's James 1.13, God does test us. He does try us. And that testing, that trial, is for our good. It's shaping us into the image of Christ. James 1 verse 3 says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Testing stretches spiritual muscles. And like muscles that have been worked, and there's that rhythm of damage and repair and damage and repair to the muscle. Well, so faith that has been stretched gets stronger. It also proves that we're His. 1 Peter 1, which Ryan read for us already this morning, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not now see him, you love him. Though you don't see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, even in the testing of your faith. Testing proves faith. Obedience demonstrates that faith is real. James 2 uses Abraham's offering of Isaac as an example of faith that works and works itself out. 
A third principle is this, that God is kind to occasionally expose to us where something might be held a little too tightly in this world. I think the repetition of your son, your only son, whom you love, likely gives away the purposes behind this trial. Was Abraham holding too tightly to his precious son? I won't say that emphatically. It's not explicit in the passage. We don't know for sure before the test, but we do know after. God is good to expose to us where something might be held too tightly and or to show us even when... It isn't being held too tightly. Implicitly, I think God was saying to Abraham in this test, am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? Am I enough for you without your son? And a fourth principle here is that God gives commensurate grace for trials. If we can't imagine being this obedient, this faithful, This faith-filled, well, it's partly because we're not going through it. 2 Corinthians 1 says that God gives enough comfort in our trials so that we have extra comfort to give comfort to those who are also going through trials. So when we're going through a trial rated at a level 2 on a scale of 1 to 10, we can't imagine going through a trial at level 6 because we currently only have comfort at a level 2. But God gives more than enough comfort for our trials. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. God gives commensurate grace for trials. And God gave extraordinary grace to Abraham to endure his test with obedience and faith. And there are hints of his faith even before he ever raised the knife over his son. As father and son ascended the hill, did you notice Isaac noticed the lack of a lamb for the sacrifice? Where's the lamb, father? We have the wood, we have the fire, we have the knife. Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, we don't know for sure what he meant by that but it likely was not one of those typical parental comments which are half true and are purposely vague. Isaac didn't mean to say, God will provide the lamb, and it's you. (laughs) He was saying something more faithful and faith-filled than that. And because before he even said that, Abraham, notice verse 5, he told his two servants who were with him, stay with the donkey, and the boy and I will go over there and worship, and literally in the Hebrew, we will come again to you. We will come back. It's plural in the Hebrew. We will go. We will come back. And perhaps that is the clue from which Hebrews 11 interprets our passage like this. By faith, 
Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promises, was in fact offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about this. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He knew, apparently, God was able to raise his son, his beloved son, his only son, the promised son, from the dead. And then Abraham reached out his hand, verse 10 says, and took the knife to slaughter his son. Secondly, we see a substitute provided. Verses 11 to 14, a substitute is provided. God intervenes in verse 11 and 12. And then verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. And fast forward to the days of Moses, and it was still known to that day as the mount where the Lord provided. God provided a substitute sacrifice, and thereby painted a picture that would be filled out for millennia to come. The mountain where this took place would later be known as Jerusalem. The place where the temple would be built, and the place where sacrifice would be made. Of course, the sacrifices of the Old Testament didn't take away sin, but they pointed to the idea of a substitute sacrifice. Substitute sacrifice all through the Old Testament on this very mountain. Let's go, let's imagine that same hill, that same place in the first century A.D., to a time when another father would lead his son, his beloved son, his only son, up on the mountain. And wood was laid on his back. And he was bound. And the instrument of his death was raised. But this time, there would be no substitute for him because he was the substitute for others. This is what Isaiah foretold 600 years before it happened in Jerusalem. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to, to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
With passages like that in mind, with the near sacrifice of Isaac in mind, and the substitute sacrifice provided in Genesis 22, hear these familiar verses in the New Testament again, like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son... That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Or at the end of Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave his son to the cross for us and for our sins. Or as Ryan read earlier, 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God will provide himself the lamb. And he did. And God, who is able to raise him up, did. That's the gospel. That's our hope. So Christian, brother or sister, it's settled. This is what God has done. He didn't almost do it. He did it. The son went willingly. He died all the way. And he rose victoriously and now lives forevermore. It's settled. And if you're not yet a Christian, it can be settled for you. It can be settled today. Believe this. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Because God so loved the world that he gave his son to that cross. Well, that's where the themes of Genesis 22 lead us. But back to the text. After this substitute sacrifice was provided and made. Thirdly, we come to this. The covenant is repeated. The covenant repeated. Read on with me in chapter 22 in verse 15. It says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. We'll stop there for now. Now the promises given to Abraham before this weren't somehow up in the air, TBD, awaiting Abraham to be tested and tried and true. No, but having been tested and proven tried and true, God has now, in a sense, doubled down on his promises of old. He adds this word, surely, twice in verse 17. 
And there are other things as well that are new here, that are enlarged here. There are are three things that are new that we haven't previously seen in all the other reiterations of the Abrahamic covenant to this point. And in each of these three new things here in Genesis 22 actually take us all the way to the New Testament. Notice in verse 17, it says, Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Land was promised before, but now this is worded in a new way. You shall possess the gate of your enemies. Can you imagine the encouragement this would be to those in the days of Joshua to hear the promise of old, you will possess the gate of your enemies as you cross that Jordan and enter in. It takes on even a fuller significance in the New Testament when Jesus says in Matthew 16 that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think he's echoing Genesis 22. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. A second thing that's new here in this covenant is notice in verse 18, offspring, it says, in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. Well, if you were with us in our Galatians series a few months back, you might remember that Paul quotes this specific passage in Galatians 3 when he points out that offspring in this passage is actually singular, not plural. Galatians 3, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say to offsprings, many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul got that from our passage, Genesis 22. Offspring, not just many, it can mean that, it does mean that, but it can also mean one, and it did, and Jesus is the one. The third thing new Verse 16, God swears by himself, by myself I have sworn. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this and comments on that very thing for about a half a dozen verses. Listen, Hebrews 6, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, swear, he swore by himself. That's our passage saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The writer of Hebrews says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, it is impossible for God to lie. So we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. (laughs) Because God swore an oath, to himself, by himself, because he can swear by nothing greater than himself, we have a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul today. That's what's new about what 
is given to Abraham here in verses 15 to 19. And of course, the old stuff is repeated as well. A, a people, a land, a place, blessing to the nations. But let's just pause here to think of the progress. Promises have been made. Promises have been enlarged. We've seen how the New Testament later picks up those promises and brings them to their completion. But what about the actual reality and progress of the promises as they sit in Genesis 22? In other words, what is a Genesis 22 progress report on the Abrahamic covenant? Only this, one son, and apparently he doesn't have to die. At least not yet. That's the extent of the fulfillment of the promises at this point. No land. Abraham goes back to Beersheba. Philistine land. Where, as we saw last week, he's sojourning. So now let's read on Genesis 23. Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you were willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a buying, burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you this field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field which the cave, with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. 
The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. A fourth heading then, a tomb needed. A tomb needed. We've seen all kinds of ups and downs in the life of Abraham and what a roller coaster these recent chapters have been. Here, it's not Abraham's sin that causes any trouble. But there was in the last chapter a test. That's a downward movement. But then God provides a substitute sacrifice and enlarges the promises of old. And then your wife dies. Your wife dies at 127 after 100 years or more of marriage. And Abraham mourns the loss of his long-beloved wife. He weeps for her, as we should when someone we love dies. But that's not where the story ends. The rest of the chapter, starting with verse 3 and following, is all about finding her a rightful burial place. Now, you may have noticed that I skipped the end of Genesis 22, verses 20 to 24. I won't read those names for you. It's a, it's a genealogy of Abraham's brother. Why is it here? Well, he does have 12 offspring. That'll be significant in the life of Abraham and his descendants to come, 12 tribes. But I think the genealogy at the end of chapter 22 is here, right here, right before Sarah's death, to remind us of Abraham's homeland, Ur, and that most of his family, all except Lot, still reside back there. So when, when Sarah dies, where will she be buried? Where is home? The dead are so often buried in their homeland or where they came from. Even in our culture today, someone might live in Albuquerque and die in Albuquerque, but then the body is flown to Missouri to be buried in a family plot. But Abraham does not take Sarah's body back to Ur. He seeks a plot of land in Canaan, the promised land. The land he's been promised, but land he does not yet possess. He's been a sojourner in that land. And so here, it is an act of faith for Abraham to seek to bury Sarah's body in Canaan land. In fact, he's going to seek out a cave that's large enough for his extended family to be buried in it. It's an expression of his confidence in God's promises that God will give that land to Abraham's offspring. It isn't home for them yet, but it will be. And Sarah's bones will be a deposit on the land of first fruits of all the descendants after her who will be buried there. Again, can you imagine the encouragement for those first readers in Moses, in Joshua's day? Sarah's there already. 
The patriarchs are there already. So you can go in. That's where this is going. That's what this passage is here for. This is why we've combined chapters 22 and 23. At the end of 22, God promises land and people. And in faith, after Sarah's death, Abraham seeks land. Now, I won't go into the details of all this negotiating that takes place here. It's dizzying. There are a number of cultural elements that are foreign to us. What we need to understand at bare minimum is that they were wanting to give Abraham a cave when he was insisting, I need a plot of land with a cave in it. They were insisting to give it to Abraham and, uh, you know, you'll owe us a little something. You'll be indentured to us a little something. But Abraham won't risk that. So he insists that he pay for it, that he pay, it, pay for it quite generously, and then he pays for the field with the cave and the whole area around it in its public. This is a contract that, humanly speaking, is unbreakable. And so fifth, and lastly, land is now secured. This place, this cave, gets repeated again in chapter 25 of Genesis, and again in Genesis 49, and again in Genesis 50. Read those chapters later on your own. Just go look for that key paragraph where patriarchs are buried in the same cave. At the same place, each time it refers to Abraham having purchased that spot from the Hittites. It's a big deal. The burials of these people in this specific land weren't special for the familial sentimentality of it. It was about a foothold in the land. It was a deposit of bones in land that they would one day possess. And yet, Abraham's extended family, the next three generations, though they would be buried in that cave, they would die owning no more land than this plot of land. I mean, you fast forward even to the book of Genesis... And God's people are many in number, but they're not even in that land. They're in slavery in Egypt. And so the book of Hebrews tells us that the whole dynamic of Abraham living in that foreign land is a foreshadow for us living in this land longing for heaven. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. He and his offspring, they died having not received the, the things promised them. They saw them from afar. And they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. People who speak like them make it clear they are seeking a homeland. A better country. A heavenly one. As important as the land was in Genesis and Exodus and Joshua, 
It wasn't ultimate. The land was important because it would be the place to which the Savior would come and the place from which the Savior would send out his disciples into the whole world. And ever since then, God's presence now, God's worship now is to be found wherever his people are. Wherever his people are gathered, like this in Albuquerque. And like Father Abraham, the followers of Jesus, they seek a homeland that's not of this land. We, again, are strangers and sojourners on the earth. We have a sure homeland that's to come, but we don't possess it yet. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. But we have a down payment on that land, that Beulah land, that promised land, even now. And more than a plot of land there, we have a mansion there that Jesus has been building for us. I mean, Jesus has already paid for it in full. Jesus is already there. Jesus and his bones are already there. That's where we're going. And so let's take him at his word, every bit of it. Let's believe everything he says. Let's trust him all the way, even when it sounds crazy. Let's obey him all the way, even the radical stuff. Let's not be surprised when life is hard. We're not home yet. Let's not be surprised when the Lord is trying our faith. He does that with his people for their good. And let's live like heaven is our home, not this world. Let's live like eternity is our reward. And the end is as good as done. And it is soon. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your marvelous word, your marvelous plan. And we pray you would make us a people who believe it and live like it. Increase our faith. Increase our capacity to obey you. Increase our longing for heaven. And help us as we try to get others to join us on this journey and to make heaven their home with us. Oh, we thank you. We thank you in Jesus' strong and saving name. Amen.